name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. All right, simple question tonight. How do you react to being told you're just like your mother or your father? There's one of two reactions to that. People either love it or they really don't like it at all, right? We often hear people say, but I'm nothing like my mother or my father. And then you meet their mother or their father and you realize, well, it's not exactly true. But just hold on to that thought for a few minutes. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, since Isaac and Rebekah's marriage we read about last week, 20 years have passed by. After, we, after they get married, we hear the last words of Genesis on Abraham, how he remarried and had more children. And before he died, he made sure that his younger children were provided for, but on his death, Isaac received the inheritance. Abraham was then buried with Sarah, and the Bible said that God blessed Isaac. We then get a little excursion about Ishmael and his family. And then we get back to Isaac again. Now Isaac is like his father in many, many respects. In fact, several, several of the stories about Isaac and Rebekah seem like someone was simply repeating what had already been written about Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah have problems conceiving just like Abraham and Sarah do. They have run-ins with kings who think Rebekah is beautiful, and Isaac, fearing for his safety, he just takes a page out of his dad's playbook. He goes to them and says, King, uh, you met my sister, right? Let's go with um, hijinks ensue, and God bails out Isaac, just the way he had to bail out Abraham a hundred years before that. And just like his father Abraham, Isaac prays to God, and God answers. But unlike Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah have twins. And the twins have a contentious relationship from before they were even born. It says they fought in the womb. And when Rebekah cried out to God for relief, he tells her that both of her children will be important. They'll rule great nations. But in the end, the younger will be the promise bearer. And when they're born, Esau comes out first. And it says Jacob is still holding on to his heel as he's coming out of the womb. Esau is reddish and hairy in complexion, and we learn he's his father's favorite. They're both outdoorsmen. Jacob, on the other hand, is Rachel's favorite, a quieter child, more of a homebody, but also something of a rascal. Now, remember last week I asked you if you ever imagined living in the past as a kid, if you ever played after watching television or reading a book? Did you ever want to grow up to be one of those cowboys like the Cartwrights? Or one of those riverboat gamblers like one of the Mavericks? In this case, Esau is a Cartwright and Jacob's a Maverick. They fit those to a T. And then it happens. One day Esau comes back from the fields and it says he's famished, he's starving. And Jacob's making stew. And Esau comes in and says, brother, I'm starving, let me have some. What does Jacob say? Fine, just give me your birthright first. Esau says something I could hear many young people saying. What do I care? I'm about to die of hunger. But Jacob, right up until this point, it almost seems like it's fun banter between the brothers, right? They're teasing each other back and forth. I mean, I've teased my siblings any number of times about things growing up. But Jacob says, no, listen, I'm serious. 
you want to eat, swear to me that you're going to give it up. And Esau does. And he does it without much thought. Now here's the thing. Esau doesn't seem to take the birthright very seriously. Did he think that his brother was just messing with him? Did he think, hey, I'm dad's favorite. He's going to leave it all to me anyway, so I'll say whatever I want and get some stew out of the deal? We don't know the why, only that he did it. And Jacob, Jacob's not coming out of this smelling like a bunch of roses either. Just like he was grabbing the heel as they were being born, trying to pull ahead of his brother. He gets the best of him here. Letting someone starve until you've gotten what you want from them. And it's his own brother. I've heard and read several commentators and preachers over the years that say Jacob's election is the next in line of the promise is in spite of himself and due to God's grace not to anything he did to deserve it. The psalmist writes, Your word is a lantern to my feet and a light upon my path. Now here we are in the middle of the longest psalm, a psalm dedicated to praising God's word and his law. We get a practical bit of advice, one that Jacob and Esau could have both used. Using God's word to light their pathway. The psalmist writes, my life is always in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. My life is in my hand. It's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? But we see it a couple of other times in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, Jephthah, one of the, one of the judges, is asked why he went out to battle and didn't call on some of the other tribes to come with him and fight. He says, listen, I had to take my life in my own hand. You saw what was going on. And you didn't get your swords and come and join us. So I had to lead the men out into the field anyway. Because I was confident that God would help. When King Saul wants to kill David, Jonathan, Saul's son, stands up and says to his father, Why do you want to kill David? He went out and took his own life in his hand when he went out and fought with Goliath. And now that he's more popular than you, do you want to kill him? And Saul relents. It's a phrase that means you've done something you knew was dangerous. And the psalmist is saying, listen, I'm in this dangerous situation, but I'm going to do it anyway because I've not forgotten what you want me to do. And in the end, he says, I've applied my heart to fulfill your statutes forever and to the end. Esau and Jacob don't always listen to what God is telling them or what he told their parents and grandparents. But like the psalmist, Esau and Jacob have hope in the Lord. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now last week we read and heard about how Paul admitted he didn't always do what he should be doing. He ended up by asking a question two weeks ago. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? He goes on to give the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that does it. And now he follows that by explaining that there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Now why is that? Because we're living under a new law. One that saves us from sin and death. One where we're forgiven our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Paul will spend these verses talking about how we ought to be living. Living in the spirit. Verses that explain how all of us, including Paul, we still live here in this world. Paul here calls it living in the flesh. 
And I've heard it described like this. When we're in the flesh, we're worried mostly about ourselves. What makes us happy? What we want? Have you ever had that embarrassing moment where you're in the car and one of your children says something like, why are you mad at the guy that just passed you? You just passed ten people in a row. What's you upset about? Because we want to be first. It's okay when I pass somebody. It's not okay when they do it. And then when Jesus came, it says, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent Jesus to beat sin at its own game. Born into the world, Jesus didn't succumb to the temptations that Paul just said that he did. That we all know we all do at points. And by doing so, Jesus fulfilled the law. And now as joint heirs with Christ, we should be living to his example, setting our minds on the spirit. What it's saying here is that our flesh is hostile to God. It's not saying that when we focus, saying that when we focus on ourselves, when we don't follow the great commandments, loving God, loving our neighbors, ourselves, loving each other like Christ loved us, we're letting the flesh win. But we have a great high priest, one that was sinless, but one the Bible says understands the temptations we face and loves us because he's lived here. He's been through it all. And because we have the spirit in our lives, we are his and have a great hope. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit that dwells in you have the promise of life, spiritual life while we're living in this world, and eternal life when this life is over. In our gospel, our great high priest finds himself going out of the house and sitting beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, and while the whole crowd stood on the beach, he began to tell them parables. Think about that. He had to get out in the boat everyone to hear him. And while he's on the boat, he begins to explain to people about what's going on. And in these parables, which we'll hear over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to lay out principles about the kingdom in everyday language that he's hoping people will understand. He says, listen, the sower went out to sow seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds quickly came and ate it. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And when they sprung up, they didn't have depths of soil. And when the sun rose, they were scorched. Because they lacked any roots, they withered away. And other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But some seed fell on good soil. It brought forth grain, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Now on the one hand, this is a pretty straightforward example. Have you ever just thrown seeds out in the yard, not worrying about it? What usually happens to it? The birds come and eat it. The squirrels come and eat it. Most of it's just eaten before it's anything has happened. And anything that does grow, you get mixed results with, right? Some of it grows a little bit. Some of it's choked out by the weeds. And some of it grows weirdly. I mean, have you ever had like a pumpkin plant start growing up in the lawn because the kids were eating pumpkins or eating watermelons and were spitting the seeds out and suddenly the next year, Weird vines are growing. How often do they actually survive to become fruitful vines? Not often. 
man, they can get long and weird. And it's fun to watch them grow. But even back then, they knew that the best results for planting seeds were to do what? To prepare the ground, to fertilize it, to weed it, to water it. Jesus here is giving a very practical analogy that back then when most people were farmers, they thoroughly understood. But the question is, what is he trying to tell them? They already know how to plant seeds. And the disciples, in the verses we didn't read this evening, they get frustrated. They don't understand why Jesus isn't just flat out telling them what he wants to get across. And they ask him, Jesus, why are you talking to us in these parables? And Jesus responds, because the lessons aren't for everyone. What I'm talking about here is information for the new kingdom for you all. And after spending a few verses explaining his methods, he goes on and explains the parables, right? He says, some people hear God's word, but they're not ready for it yet. It's like the seeds are thrown out and eaten by the birds before they can take root. And others hear and grow for a little while, but they don't grow deep enough, and they lack roots. And when problem comes, they're swept away. And others, they grow, but they never weed anything. And they let everything in this broken world choke out their love for God and their love for others. And for some, everything is ready and well-tended, and they hear the word of God at the right time, and they grow. And I have good news. The God who loved Jacob, the one who protected the psalmist and Jacob and Abraham and David, the God who sent his son to deal with sin and human flesh by becoming one of us, he loves us. He wants to bring us life in this world and then to be with us forever. Think about the parable and about how planting works. You're feeling like your roots aren't deep enough? I encourage you, come to Bible study. Join us for Compline. Come and get closer to Jesus. Learn more about him. In the fall, we'll have Rector's Forum on prayer, both public when we come together and private when you're in your own home. If you feel like the world is trying to choke out your joy, take your focus off the world for a few minutes. Quit checking your Facebook and your social media. Turn off the television. Go out and take a walk. Read a book. Do a puzzle. I'll give you one better. Invite some friends over. Invite them over for dinner or a game or a puzzle. Recharge yourself in a way that you need to. Be it by yourself or with the fellowship of others. If you have family members you're worried about, that the birds have eaten their seeds, pray. One of the good news is gardens are tended from year to year. Just because a plant doesn't take hold this season, what do we do the next season? We go out and we try to plant again. We put more seed out. We know that the God who loved and protected Jacob in spite of himself, the one who loved and protected David and the psalmist, the one who loved Paul, even when Paul thought he was acting like a wretch. That same God loves you, and he loves the whole world. So cultivate the seeds that have been planted in your life. Amen.